This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Psychedelic drugs are linked in the public consciousness to the counterculture of the 60s and people like Timothy Leary with his slogan, turn on, tune in and drop out. But actually it wasn't always so. In the decade before that, in the 1950s, there was widespread research into the use of psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, that's from magic mushrooms, to treat things like alcohol addiction and depression. It eventually came crashing down when some, like Leary, became psychedelic evangelists and the ambitions of the research became muddled. Now, a second wave of research into the potential benefits of these drugs in treating things like anxiety, depression and the distress of terminal illness is well underway in Australia and around the world. Equipped with modern medical technologies like MRI, it's looking to avoid the mistakes of that first wave. American writer and journalist Michael Pollan has explored this renaissance of research in his book, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics. It's mostly about mental illness and addiction and indeed terminal illness, but it's also about how healthy people are using psychedelics to change their lives. On The Health Report this week and next, I speak to Michael about the history of psychedelics, his own experiences with these drugs, the risks involved and where the research is headed. And a few warnings, this program does have some frank discussion of drug use and some explicit language. The drugs we're discussing are illegal in Australia and in many other countries. The conversation was recorded in front of an audience at the Sydney Opera House in July. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be back on this stage after, I think, seven years. I wanted to just jump straight into sort of, you know, a lot of the audience know the basics here. We're going to talk a lot about set and setting. We should just explain that as a preamble because I want to go from there to something else. What are we talking about when we talk about set and setting when we talk about psychedelics? So set and setting were terms actually introduced by Timothy Leary, the famous psychedelic researcher turned evangelist. And he was trying to get at the idea that the kinds of experiences people have on psychedelics are highly dependent on their expectations and their environment. So set is your mindset, and setting is the actual environment you're taking it in. And this can profoundly affect the experience. Now, this is true to some extent with all drugs, but to a really exaggerated extent with psychedelics. And it argues for really working on those things, and the therapists who are using this do. I mean, you know, kind of shaping the expectation, the intention and making sure that you're not doing these drugs in a, in a white room with a buzzing fluorescent light. So we'll come back to a, a lot of that uh, Well, later. that's how they started. In the yeah. 50s, they would just put you in a hospital room and dose you, and, and that's people, people didn't forget. have a good there time. Were two, there were two waves of psychedelic research. It was that first wave where thousands upon thousands of people were experimented upon in, in addiction, alcoholism, and so on. So, I mean, there was a large body of research which got forgotten. Yeah, I, so this was one of my big surprises when I started on this, and in fact it was a surprise on, on, on the part of many of the younger researchers. But I think most of us assume that psychedelics are a product of the 60s, and that the word psychedelic is a 60s word, and it conjures images of the 60s. But in fact, there had been this long, very fertile and productive period of research from the time that Albert Hoffman basically discovers LSD, from about the late 40s, early 50s, through the mid-60s. And as you say, 40,000 research subjects were dosed with LSD or psilocybin or mescaline. There were 1,000 peer-reviewed papers, 
And there were actually six international conferences dedicated to LSD alone between 1950 and 1965. So this was a serious branch of psychiatry. And in major research centers? Oh yeah, at major research centers and uh, in Canada, in England, in Switzerland, in the United States. And they were getting some good results. They were, alcoholism was a particularly promising indication. They were, the meta-analysis that had been done since suggests that they were getting about 50% success rates treating alcoholics, which is better excellent. Than a lot. Yeah, it's better than what's out there. They were giving it to people who had cancer, not to cure their cancer, but to help them deal with their anxiety and depression. And they were doing it for depression. They were trying everything, basically. So I want to come back to set and setting, because possibly in modern history, the only uncontaminated experience yeah. of a psychedelic was indeed Hoffman. Yeah. Because he had no expectation this was an accident. So this is before Leary and Aldous Huxley and so on. Yeah. So describe his trip. What happened? He was a chemist at Sandoz, big pharmaceutical company, now part of Novartis. And he was looking for a drug to help women in childbirth. And there was a lot of folk medicine that had involved ergot, which is a fungus on grain that's been implicated in various episodes of weirdness in European Sinatini's history. fire and so on. Yeah. yeah, and the Salem witch trials, some people believe. In wet years, you would eat the bread that had this infection and you would have hallucinations, but you also had gangrene and some other things. And <laughs> so it was, it was not something S people did. probably wasn't that worried about no. that, you know, minor <laughs> detail. So, but they were using some ergot derivative to help women staunch bleeding during childbirth. And so he was looking for a drug that would do that. And he was doing these derivatives of ergotamine, the, the chemical. And the 25th one was LSD-25, and they tested it on animals, and nothing much happened, and they put it on the shelf. But then in 1943, and this is a sort of mysterious intuition, that he had to take a second look at that particular molecule. He thought it was an unusually beautiful molecule, and uh, something told him he needed to resynthesize it, and he did. And he got a little, he ingested a little somehow on his finger and his eye. He doesn't know what happened. He had a feelings of something going on in his mind. Because it doesn't take much. Just... It, it's, it takes so little. I mean, this is one of the strongest psychoactive molecules we know of. It's measured in micrograms, right? Millionths of a gram, not milligrams. And so he realized there was, he had a psychoactive substance here. And so the next thing he did was, well, let me take a real dose. And not knowing how powerful it was, he took 250 micrograms, which oh, some, some of you understand. There are some psychonauts yes. in the audience. <laughs> we know who you are. <laughs> yeah, the facial recognition has gotten That's all right, the laughers. Yeah. Um, so he takes this bigger dose. He's in the lab with his young lab assistant, and he realizes, oh shit, this is serious. And the walls are vibrating, and the furniture is coming to life, and he says to his assistant, I've got to get home. And they take a bicycle. It's the wartime. Gasoline is being rationed. I picture this very wobbly bicycle ride. It's actually still celebrated on Bicycle Day, April 19th, I think it is. And um, he gets home, and he summons the doctor. Um, Did he think he was dying? He didn't know, he was worried he might be. He didn't know what was going on, but he thought there was something very wrong. And it wasn't pleasant at this point at all. And I think he's kind of fighting what's happening. And the doctor comes and says, you're fine. Your pupils are dilated, but all your vitals are fine. And this allowed Take him to Take two relax. aspirin and see me in the morning. <laughs> exactly, not even. And 
as time goes on, he gets comfortable with the feeling. He goes out in his garden and he describes this beatific scene. Everything is jeweled with dew and it's like he's, he felt like Adam on the first day of creation. And he had this long afterglow that lasted for a couple days. So that's the first acid trip. And you're right. It's the only one that was innocent of any expectation. Every other one has been informed by stories people have heard. Aldous Huxley's in particular. I think that's informed everybody. But The doors of perception. Yeah. But the problem was he had this powerful drug, but they really didn't know what it was good for. And that's what launches this 15-year period of research, essentially trying to figure that out. And Sandoz did something very interesting, which was they crowdsourced this R&D effort. And they said to any researcher, if you will merely report back what you learn about LSD-25, we will give you as much as you want. And, <laughs> and really, all you needed was a good letterhead. And... <laughs> Well, there was this guy, this weird guy who was a spy and a, an oh, adventurer, Hubbard, and he, yeah. he accumulated a whole bunch of this stuff. So Al Hubbard is, I think, the most interesting character that I turned up in, in my research of the history. And Al Hubbard is truly a man of mystery, and, and I certainly wasn't able to answer all the questions about him. But what we do know about him is he was born in Kentucky in 1902. He didn't apparently have a pair of shoes till he was 12. He was kind of a real hillbilly. But he was brilliant, and he was a great tinkerer, and he invented a radium battery that used radioactive material to generate power, which doesn't sound like a very good idea. But he sold it, and for like $75,000 when he was still quite young, he had all these careers. He was a rum runner during Prohibition, but he was also a spy for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. He smuggled arms to England when it was still illegal to do this before 1939, yet he was also working for the OSS. So he was a very complicated person, and he was also a Catholic mystic. So his story, he's actually as important as Timothy Leary, I think, to the history of LSD. I mean, there's a long chapter in one of your books on Johnny Appleseed and the spread yes. of apples, and you call him the Johnny Appleseed of... Uh... The Johnny Appleseed of LSD. Yeah. So Hubbard has... After he's made all this money, he owns boats. He lives in British Columbia. He's got an island to himself. He's loaded. He's in his 50s, and he doesn't know what to do next. He has an angelic visitation. He's hiking in Washington State, and an angel comes to him and says, you're going to learn about something that could change the direction of human history, and you can choose to be involved or not. And he has no idea what she's talking about. A year later, he reads an academic paper about LSD. And he decides this could be it. He gets a hold of some LSD and tries it. And he has a powerful mystical experience. And he realized this is what's going to change the course of human history. He then goes to Sandoz and asks them for a supply as a researcher. And they give him what is variously described as a liter bottle of LSD. Or I forget how many doses. But it was enough to turn on a significant percentage of the human population. <laughs> and he keeps, he buries some of it in Death Valley, but he always Do we know has, where? <laughs> <laughs> this would be more valuable than gold. It, it would be, it would be. But he, he carries it around in a satchel, and he decides he is going to change human history by turning on the best and brightest. He's an elitist. He's really kind of a Mandarin for a hillbilly. So he, he proceeds to go around the world administering LSD to people. 
So, for example, he turned on uh, bishops in the Catholic Church. He turned on people in the U.S. government. We don't know exactly who. He J. Edgar? No, he tried, though. He actually reached out to J. Edgar Hoover, who would not play, which is not surprising, yeah, I guess. Yeah, the set would have been a bit wrong. <laughs> he did turn on some people in Silicon Valley, though, and began what became a long tradition of psychedelic use. You know, many of us think Steve Jobs, was, who talked about his LSD use, as, as really determinative of his aesthetic. And he famously said that um, Windows would be a much better product if Bill Gates had tripped. Um, <laughs> and Bill Gates responded, but I did. <laughs> so Hubbard plays this very key role, spreading it around. And was he working for the CIA at the same time? Maybe. Because there are all these stories about CIA doing LSD experiments. Well, this, we know the CIA, it came out in the 70s that the CIA had a research program that was parallel to this other research program. But they were trying to weaponize LSD. They were using it. First, they thought it was a truth serum, but people said crazy shit. <laughs> it wasn't truthful. And then they. Oh, really? <laughs> well, maybe some truth. And then That's they why thought. Edgar Hoover didn't want to do it. <laughs> then they thought they would put it in the water supply and disable a population. And there's some rumors that they tried that in some small town in France. I don't know if it's true. Anyway, so they, had, they, they did horrible things with it. Okay. They dosed people without their knowledge. It was really an ugly chapter. We don't know the half of it. You're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, and a special conversation with writer and journalist Michael Pollan on the new science of psychedelics recorded at the Sydney Opera House in July. So let's just talk... I'm going to come to your experiences in a minute, but let's just talk about some of the stuff that you talk about in the book, which is towards the end of the book, but it strikes me as really important to frame the beginning as well, which is about ego, it's about self, it's about dissolution, and it's about this weird neurological network called the default mode network, which controls and traffics our brain. Because I think that we'll understand some stuff a bit better when we understand that. So first of all, the experience of ego and self and dissolution, that seems to be a common theme regardless of which yeah. drug you take. Yeah. So how psychedelics work is not that well understood. Although in this new wave, this renaissance of research, we have tools we didn't have then. One of them is neuroimaging, fMRI and MEG and some other modes. And one of the most interesting findings, I'm going to start with the default mode network and work toward the ego issue, is that when they began imaging the brains of people on psilocybin and LSD, which involves essentially injecting them and then sliding them into an MRI. I mean, if you've ever been in an MRI machine, talk about set and setting. That is, <laughs> it's not optimal. Very narrow setting. We, we, we owe these volunteers an enormous debt of gratitude. <laughs> They kind of expected to see a very excited brain with lots of centers lighting up. But they were very surprised to see that one particular network that I had never heard of was downregulated, was, was silenced, basically. And that's the default mode network. What is the default mode network? It was only discovered about 15, 20 years ago. And it's a very tightly linked set of structures that involve the prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingular cortex, and these deeper, older centers tied to uh, emotion and memory. 
It's a regulatory network. The brain is a hierarchical system, and it's kind of at the top. It's a, one researcher called it the orchestra conductor. The traffic corporate. manager. Yeah, the traffic manager. And, and lots of information passes through this hub. What does the default mode network do? Well, it appears to be involved in self-reflection, mind-wandering. Uh, the reason it was discovered is that when you put someone in an fMRI and you're going to give them a task to do, you need a baseline. So they, they would say, don't do anything, don't think about anything, and it would light up. It's kind of where the mind goes when it's not occupied by attention. So it's involved in self-reflection, time travel, the ability to think about the future and the past, theory of mind, the ability to impute mental states to other beings, which is important to moral, you know, moral development and things like that. And something called the narrative or autobiographical self. That's the way we take the events of our lives and weave them into the story of who we think we are. So to the extent that the ego has a location in the brain, it, it's in this network, it appears. And interestingly enough, this network goes quiet. And the degree to which it's silenced correlates with reports from volunteers of ego dissolution, this sense that yourself is gone and you are just this disembodied awareness or you've merged with something larger than yourself. But the walls of ego have come down. Which people, when they're guiding you through this, often talk about if you've come across something fearful, walk towards it because it's, this causes the fear in some ways is that you feel yourself falling apart. The preservation of ego. That's one of the reasons I think it's so central. So when they're preparing you in this guided psychedelic therapy, which is different than the way it's used recreationally, they do tell you, if you feel like you're melting, going crazy, dying, go with it. Don't fight it. If, yes, if you see a monster, you know, step right up to it and say, what are you doing in my mind? When your ego dissolves, um, interesting things happen. One is there's no subject-object duality. You become part of something bigger. And that can be an incredibly ecstatic experience. But if you're fighting to hold on to your ego, and the ego tries to preserve itself, you're going to be really anxious. And I think that is at the root of many so-called bad trips, this desire to hold on when you're melting. And also, if, if it's happening and, and you're at a festival or at the dinner table, um, <laughs> you're going to fight. And so what a good guide will do is create an environment, a set and setting, where you feel safe enough to let go. And I did have an experience where that happened that was, that was quite profound. And, you know, it sounds like a scary thing, but if you surrender, it's actually an ecstatic thing in the literal sense of your outside your normal self. So bits of the brain are communicating with each other which don't normally do so. When this regulatory hub goes down, instead of all these signals passing through it and being trafficked around, they start talking to each other. So for the first time, say, your visual cortex is talking directly to your memory or emotion centers. And so you get all this new traffic. The brain is rewired temporarily, and new connections are being made, and some of them may have lasting effects. You know, we don't know yet exactly. And the brain becomes much more densely connected. And some people have, in their normal mode, they have more active default mode networks than others, and it has consequences for their personality and whether they're liable to get depression or not. Yeah. So one theory of depression is that it's, it, it involves an overactive default mode network. The default mode network is trying to, you know, run the show, and sometimes it becomes hypervigilant, say. So the kinds of disorders that psychedelics appears in this, in this research to help... Things like depression, 
anxiety, addiction, obsession, they're all at one end of the spectrum of mental function, which is to say they're characterized by very rigid thinking, habits that have become really deeply ingrained that you can't break out of. And this may be something enforced by the default mode network and that storytelling function I mentioned. So people get trapped in these narratives about themselves that, you know, I can't get through the day without a drink or a cigarette. I'm unworthy of love. My work is hoping, shit. Yeah. And it is the ego that's telling those stories. And sometimes we get stuck in them. And, and what happens at the other end? Because that's where maybe there's some risk in psychedelics. Yeah. So at the other end, you have schizophrenia and, you know, a disordered mind. And for people in that situation, it doesn't not appear that psychedelics are a good idea. And indeed, there are some people who have had psychotic breaks on psychedelics. So the risk issue is worth addressing, though, I think. You know, before I had the experiences I did for this book, I, I felt I couldn't write a book on psychedelics without having a series of psychedelic experiences because I hadn't done it at the age-appropriate stage of life. I'm kind of a late bloomer when it comes to psychedelics. I was nervous about it. I was very reluctant. And, you know, 20-year-old males are fairly reckless. And, you know, 58-year-old males, not so much. And before, before we leave the default mode network, yeah. what do we know lowers the activity? Because it's not just psychedelics no, lower oh no. the activity of this. And it's critical to this issue of, do you need to take a psychedelic? Are there, are there, there are other ways to do it. And we'll learn about more. The one we know about for sure, and this was really interesting, at the same time they were imaging the brains of people on LSD and psilocybin in London at Imperial College, a psychiatrist at Yale was imaging the brains using the same technology of very experienced meditators, people with more than 10,000 hours of meditation experience. He would put them in and ask them to meditate. And guess what? Their brains looked identical. The default mode network is silenced also in successful meditation. And that sort of makes sense because there is a loss of ego. So we know that's another way to silence the default mode And you network. silenced it by recapitulating your psychedelic experience. I did a very interesting kind of neural feedback exercise with this psychiatrist. His name is Judd Brewer, who's been studying a meditation as a technique for behavior change, addiction and things like that. And he had set up a neural feedback thing focused on one particular part of the default mode network, the posterior cingulate cortex. This is the part that is involved in that storytelling function that constructs the narrative of who we are. So if I show you a list of adjectives, handsome, wealthy, generous, and I just ask you to think about it, this part of your brain will not light up. But if I say, think about how all these adjectives apply or don't apply to you, it lights up. So it's really about making that connection between self and qualities in the world. So I did this exercise with him to see if I could reduce activity in this part of the default mode network. And what I did, and I didn't tell him I was going to do this. He had various meditation exercises. I said, I'm going to try something. Will you just measure this? And I remembered a powerful psychedelic experience I'd had, an image that had come to me when I was on ayahuasca. And while I was experiencing it in my head, the default mode network went quiet. And he was like, what happened? What were you thinking about? So there are probably other, many other ways we can do this. And you also, in a training session, did holotropic breathing. Describe what holotropic breathing is. Holotropic breath work is a method of achieving a psychedelic state without 
a psychedelic drug. It was invented by Stanislav Grof, who was a Czech emigre psychiatrist, very involved with this period of psychedelic research I'm describing, but especially in the 60s. And when it was made illegal, he, he was having such success in a psychiatric practice that he wanted to come up with something else that would induce the state that was legal. So drawing on yogic traditions and drumming and all these kind of traditional methods of inducing trance, he came up with something called holotropic breathwork, where essentially you enter into a pattern of breathing that's very fast and you're hearing strong rhythmic music, you're exhaling more than you're inhaling, you're hyperventilating basically. And I did this and you, it works for about three quarters of people. I slipped into this trance state within like five minutes where I, I no longer had to try to breathe that way, it sustained itself and I had this image of myself riding a horse through a forest and it was the most uncanny thing and it was just from breathing and it lasted about 45 minutes. And it gave you atrial fibrillation? It did. It had, it had a side effect. I have, I had, I've actually had it fixed, a heart condition called atrial fibrillation which your heart goes into weird rhythms sometimes and before I undertook any kind of psychedelic experience this is the difference of doing psychedelics in your late 50s. I consulted my cardiologist. <laughs> and he, your proctologist? <laughs> no, I didn't go that far. He kind of green-lighted everything except MDMA, ecstasy. And this guide I was working with usually starts with ecstasy and then moves you to LSD. And I said, look, I can't do the ecstasy. He doesn't recommend it because it's an amphetamine and it drives up your heart rate. But ironically, on the no-drug experience, I had an episode, a very scary episode of atrial fibrillation. So let's talk about your experiences. I mean, no, let's just finish okay. talking about risk. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry, there's a lot to cover. So in addition to going to my cardiologist and learning about this, before I did this, I wanted to know what kind of danger I was putting myself in. And what I learned about psychedelics was pretty surprising. I learned first that they're remarkably, and, and here I'm talking specifically about psilocybin and LSD, they're remarkably non-toxic drugs. There is no lethal dose that has ever been found for LSD or psilocybin. You can't say that. They're over-the-counter drugs that have a well-known lethal dose. Tylenol is, a, is an example. It's a couple dozen pills. So that's pretty remarkable and reassuring. And I also found that they're non-addictive. They're not habit-forming. They don't have that reinforcement effect. And so if you have a rat in a cage and you've set it up, you know, that classic drug test where they have two levers, one administers the drug to their bloodstream, the other gives them, you know, sugar water. And if it's cocaine, the rat will keep pressing that lever until it dies or heroin until it's addicted. You give it LSD once, that's it. <laughs> they will never go back to that lever. <laughs> they don't know how to interpret the experience. So, so it, doesn't, it doesn't affect the dopamine centers the way, you know, classic drugs of addiction do. But there are risks, and the risks are psychological, and that there are, people can have terrifying experiences. There was a study done of people who'd had bad trips just last year, a survey, and in 7.8%, between 7 and 8% of the people had sought psychiatric help within the first year afterwards. So it had lingering effects that were very troubling. And there are a Guided or unguided? These were unguided. Unguided. And I think that that's important. And there are a certain number of people who have had psychotic breaks on LSD this, and, and psilocybin. This really does happen. Whether they would have eventually had them anyway is a question. Some people think that 
you know, it's any kind of mental trauma or mental disturbance can kick it off. It can be alcohol, cannabis, a divorce of your parents at that window when people get schizophrenia. So they're real psychological risks, but they are mitigated to some extent, to a large extent, by having a guide, someone who can talk you through difficult times and actually help you benefit from that bad trip. I mean, it's like a nightmare. You can analyze it and get some value if you're with a good therapist. Writer and journalist Michael Pollan speaking with me at the Opera House in Sydney. Next week, the second half of our conversation delves into Michael's own experiences with psychedelics and the future of research in the field. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. I'll see you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.